Welcome to Sidewalk Monastery, a podcast where we talk to people and listen to their stories. In this special two-part episode, we talk to George Wolfe, saxophonist and Yamaha, car- Yamaha concert artist and Professor Emeritus at Ball State U- University. Please enjoy this great conversation as we hear from George Wolfe. Hello and welcome to Sidewalk Monastery. I'm Kelly Tag. My pronouns are he, him. And I'm Marky Oliver and my pronouns are she, her. And today uh, we have a special guest with us here at the Rosebud Cafe where we often do our uh, conversations. And today we actually have a regular here at Rosebud. And uh, George is like us with drinking tea. So if you hear any serpent and uh, slipping and sliding on anything around here today, it's because we're all drinking tea together. Um, George George has been a friend for a long time and he's been a uh, professor of saxophone at Ball State University. He uh, retired just a few years ago. He's taught for over 30 years. Um, is a leading saxophone performer in this country as well as a teacher. Many of his students have, are also uh, becoming fine musicians. Um, always has one of the best studios at the university when he was there. He was also director of the Peace and Conflict Studies at Ball State for about four years. And, and during that time period in around 2004, he was put on a a fabulous list. I know a lot of faculty in this country would like to be on that list, my partner included. Uh, It was the most dangerous professors in the country, the top 101 most dangerous professors in America. Uh, It's it's a wonderful list to be on to know that, you know, that uh, people are that threatened by by peace, for instance. Uh, uh, God forbid. Uh, George is also an ordained interfaith minister. He's an author of several books. And in 2018, George was given the opportunity to be the Green Party's candidate for Indiana's Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. He's a peace activist. He's still a performer, still writes music and books. And we're so grateful to have with us today George Wolf. Thanks for being here, George. Well, it's great, great to be here. It's great to be here. I'm real excited about it. I, yeah. I should say that I'm. A, you mentioned I'm a. <clears throat> I'm a regular here at the cafe, and that's because my wife and I uh, volunteer for Wheels on Meals. Mm-hmm. No, Meals on Wheels. Meals on Wheels. There we go. <laughs> I always go. See, that's have the, some more tea, George. That's the dis- <laughs> that's a dyslexic poet. It is. Tea, I promise. I'm, you admit I, I, I have won awards for my poetry. And I think the reason is, is because I'm always turning things around like that. But anyways, <laughs> uh, so no, but the point is, I'm going to try to make it, the reason, what brings me here was, is a part of activism. And activism is very much a part of my life, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it wasn't originally that way. Uh, I, 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 I kind of made that shift when I saw that I, I was in graduate school at Indiana University in the 19, late 19, uh, early 1970s, and this was in the Vietnam era. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, um, people forget 
how, how much how, how important the arts are in calling a public attention to injustice mm -hmm. and how, how what role the arts play in uh, nonviolent resistance and I started to get tuned into that because there were a lot of music groups around that time that were uh, performing music that was in, in protest to the, uh, to the war, Vietnam yes. War yes. and uh, the, the in contrast to that though when you're working on your uh, graduate degree in performance you're you're, you're doing all these kind of academic pieces which develop your technique and, 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 and try to establish your reputation in the community mm -hmm. right. of, in my case, the community of saxophonists and, uh, and, and orchestral musicians and whatever. Um, so I, I found after a while that music wasn't all that meaningful because it didn't really speak beyond that very limited domain. Right. And right. so after I got out and started teaching for several years, I started to say, you know, I have to do something to make my, what I do in life more meaningful mm -hmm. and more connected. And uh, activism was a way to do that. So I started ha interacting with a com uh, some composers and asked, they wrote some pieces which were related to uh, topics that integrated with other things. Mm -hmm. not, only, not only peace and conflict studies, but also uh, uh, spirituality and things like that. Um, so, uh, so that's how that's how I made that's that's where that's where that shift occurred, I guess you, you know, if you want to call it. I don't like to use the word left and right because you're, as soon as you're starting using labels like that, you're already limiting. You're already right. limiting exactly. what the what the yes, what the, uh, the listener or person you're talking to they kind of start to stereotype you. So I don't like mm -hmm. to use it. But there is a shift there from me trying to make what I do more meaningful and more applicable and more relevant to. Uh, uh, to society and to politics and to spirituality and the things that are deeper. Because I saw myself, you know, I'm really not a saxophonist. I'm an artist. I'm a performing artist. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I write poetry, I'm really not a poet. I'm, I'm writing about something which is which has an underlying deeper meaning and relationship to other things. And, mm -hmm. and relationship is the most important thing mm -hmm. in, to me. In, like establishing relationships, and quite frankly, I don't think I'm really that good at it, and so I really have to work at it. Um, mm -hmm. Relationship, uh, in, in, I think that's become more and more important now in in, in spirituality. You know, I, I sort of looked at, I, I started getting interested in Taoism and and meditation and uh, the Indian Indian philosophy mm -hmm. when I was in. Uh, uh, at Indiana University, and uh, uh, I went over to the library and checked out the Bhagavad Gita and the Tao Te Ching and all these things, and I started to get heavily influenced in that. And uh, but that that sort of led me into myself. I was just trying to absorb that kind of um, teaching and integrating it in, in a meditative, contemplative experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and it took me a long time to realize, you know, that's really not where you. You can't stop there. You have to connect it with other people, mm -hmm. with other organizations, with, with life. It, you have to bring it to the, into the relationship, mm -hmm. integrate it into the relationship. Mm -hmm. It took me a long time to figure that out. But finally, uh, I'm, but I'm still working on that. But, um, so that, that's how all that got kind of connected yeah, the, together. The idea of being connected mm -hmm. in community, mm -hmm. yeah. whatever mm -hmm. that looks like or mm -hmm. size-wise. 
interesting. You know, it's that uh, relational theology that some of us use that mm -hmm. kind of language to talk about connecting all this together because we're interdependent on one another. Yes, that's right. The uh, interdependence. We, uh -huh. we, we don't survive without mm -hmm. others. Mm -hmm. um, and when you're talking mm -hmm. about spirituality, you're not a lone wolf. You can't just be out there. You, mm -hmm. you still have to depend on others. It, it might be minor, but there's a dependency. Well, I mean, it's interesting, interesting because so often, like, in our culture today, when it comes to um, Jesus, everyone always, my personal favorite, they make it individual. Mm -hmm. uh, but so much of what you see within the scriptures yeah. actually speaks to a community. And uh, how often we as Americans especially love to forget that because we like to be John Wayne and we like to yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. uh, you know, be out on our own. But anyways, yeah, yeah, the, uh, you, were, you were talking about uh, community. Well, the, the, uh, uh, lately, I've been, my wife and I, my wife likes Richard Rohr a lot. Yes. yes and I, I, I like Richard Rohr Speaking too. In fact, I got a chance, I got a chance to actually meet Richard Rohr yeah. at Chautauqua Institution. He was there for a whole week. I heard him speak many times. He's a very unselfish person. Boy, it's just a humble person. It's amazing. Uh, and I got a chance to perform for one of his services, too, which was a real honor. Um, but uh, he, has, he has this idea of the, of the, the Trinity in the Christian tradition as, as looking at it from the viewpoint of relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I've, I, I'm, con I'm convinced that we shouldn't be looking at things like the Trinity or the yin and yang or all these kind of models or, or Mobius strip. We shouldn't be looking at them uh, as, as dogma. We should be looking at them as, as a, a means of a vehicle for thinking more deeply, mm -hmm. a vehicle which can lead a person into a more meaningful contemplative view, a uh, deeper view of, mm -hmm. of that. And mm -hmm. so looking at the Trinity as relationship is one, one approach to that. Another, you know, there's a relationship, and there's, you know, there's God, Father, and, and Son don't exist independently. They're interconnected, right. and they make yes, they one another uh, in, in Christian theology. But um, the, uh, the concept of Trinity, I point out in my book, Meditations on Mystery, Science, Paradox, and Contemplative Spirituality, I have a, I have a, a uh, chapter in there called The, the uh, Mystery of, of Oneness. And... I go through several models which uh, show how things can be both different and one at the same time. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the Trinity symbol, you see that they, uh, they interlock, and in the middle, they're all one. On, on, in, mm -hmm. in, but the three mm -hmm. rings are separate. That's the, 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 the yes. three rings yeah. interconnected. So uh, I, I really think it's a big mistake. It was a big mistake for uh, something like the Trinity or something like any other kind of... Uh, symbol which helps to lead a person in that direction. It's a big mistake to just uh, insist that it's dogma. You have to believe it. You don't, it's not something you're supposed to believe or not believe, in my opinion. It's, it's a vehicle for thinking more deeply. Mm -hmm. Same thing's true for the yin and yang, the yin and yang symbol. Mm -hmm. uh, you have these, you know, the, the, the dark side and the light side, and they're in, in this uh, kind of give and take teardrop uh, diagram connect in, all in one circle, mm -hmm. and and then part of the part of the light side is in the dark side, part of the dark side is in the light side, so everything's integrated and, and connected. Mm 
a lot of people misinterpret the yin and yang as being uh, the dark side being evil and the right side being light side being good, but it's not. That's not the Taoist interpretation. The Taoist interpretation is that the dark side represents mystery, intuition, mm -hmm. uh, the feminine principle. The light side represents intellect, cognitive, uh, and uh, the masculine principle. Now those kind of masculine and feminine stereotypes are obsolete, but that's nevertheless the Taoist into the Taoist interpretation. Mm -hmm. And so, um, within us, we need to balance those. We need mm -hmm. to have a, 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 a give and take between the two, and we need to balance intuition and cognitive. We need we need to balance uh, uh, the aesthetic and the intellectual. And people are t we all know that we we well, we have a tendency to sort of be dominant on one side or the other. Some people are much more cognitive, much more intellectual, much more logical the way they approach life. Some people are much more intuitive, much more aesthetic the way they approach life. I happen to be on that intuitive aesthetic side. It kind of drives people nuts who are on the <laughs> rational side because I'm always trying to go by my insights, my, my subtle epiphanies and things like that. That's, that's what's guiding me to make a final decision rather than some sort of a logical theory. You see what I'm saying? But at the same time, if I'm over, if I go over overboard on that, I, uh, then I, I'm, I sometimes go down a path which isn't as correct or as, as uh, productive. And so I, I see I see spirituality as people are some people are bothered by the word spirituality because it seems to be uh, hard to define or not very tangible, but I, I try to bring tangibility and concreteness to the concept by saying that it's, it's you, you, you go through a shift when, when you experience something from the cognitive, intellectual, logical to the uh, aesthetic and intuitive. And uh, well, an example of that, I was out, I was out uh, my wife and I went out, there was a meteor shower out. Uh, happening, and I can't remember the date, it was in August or something. So we went out, and we're in a place where there's not much light pollution, you know, on the horizon, we're looking up, and, and we see these little streaks go by, you know, watching, and, and I'm thinking there, well, I understand the science behind it. I mean, these are, yeah. we're passing through, we're a comet, and, and, and the tail of a comet left this debris, and there, you see these things. So I'm looking at that, and yeah, so I'm, I'm really looking at it from a rational scientific perspective. And then there's one that comes by that's really, it's much larger, much brighter, with all these colors in it. And I, saw, I, I just all of a sudden burst out, wow, did you see that? It's incredible, you know. And there is a shift occurred where I was looking at it now as a work of art rather than as a, yeah. as a product, as, you know, yeah. scientific reality. Yeah. And that shift to me is, is, it's in that shift that's spirituality, I think. Explains that's where you, so so, people need. It's okay. It's okay to make that shift. A lot of people try to resist it, but it's okay to make that shift. That's where, that's where you. The the, the window of perception is open to deeper mm -hmm. thoughts and meanings and insights, mm -hmm. and then that leads to poetry too. People, yes, people will describe that as a, as a poet. There's a there's a a poem that was written by a lady named Haven Coons. And she's describing the moon uh, rising in the evening, the full moon rising in the evening. And there's a line in the poem, a beautiful line in the poem, which reads, uh, <clears throat> and the, 
and the moon sets her burn. And the moon sets her burn. That's the line in the poem. So now if you look at that from a rational intellectual point of view, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, the moon, the moon is not a her, right? The moon doesn't burn. See what I'm saying? Yeah. <clears throat> but if you look at it from the intuitive, uh, insightful side of the brain, aesthetic side of the brain, that's a beautiful line. To me, that's a, just a beautiful line. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. you, you, it connects you. You're moving from the heart to the head, or from the head to the heart, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so that's, that is what, that's how I define spirituality, the ability to make that movement and to be able to uh, uh, perceive reality from that perspective in, in addition to the rational cognitive. It is a way to, to connect to a deeper understanding mm -hmm. to something rather than just the and so I, so I, yeah, so I have the concept of non-rationality. There's rationality, there's something which is irrational, but there's also this non-rationality. So something which is rational has a logic chain, and the logic chain is coherent. Okay. If you find a flaw in the logic chain, then you argue that it's irrational. Okay. But then there are certain things which aren't intended. They aren't intended to be rational or irrational. And that poem, that line in the poem, the moon sets her burn, is not intended to be scientific. It's not intended to be intellectual. It's not intended to be rational. It's, that's why I call it non-rational. The non-rationality of life is, is uh, this, this, this avenue to, to usher you into a, a deeper, richer uh, experience and find deeper levels of meaning. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the two, you know, the non-rational and the rational, there's tension. Well, the conflict of, you know, that, that's, that exists, and then finding mm -hmm. a way, a bridge maybe, mm -hmm. so that there's some peace there. Well, there can be a tension if, if, if a person is particularly attached yes, to one or the other. attachment is the key there. It's that attachment. Yeah. Might, and if you just let that go and say, hey, they're both, they're both uh, valid ways to view uh, reality. Yeah, because we have a tendency to say one's right and one's yeah, wrong. Yeah, no, they get, it's, this, is, this, comes, yeah. this comes into what's called, uh, what Richard Rohr calls uh, non-dual thinking mm -hmm. or uni unified consciousness, non-dual thinking. And... and uh, so once we start thinking right, wrong, black and white, rational, mm -hmm. irrational, whatever, irrational, we, and separating two, you got to have one or the other. That then we're we're caught up in a dualistic mode of thinking, and we need to go. We need to transcend that. We need mm -hmm. to embrace that. And this this leads me. This leads this <laughs> this connects a lot with uh, peace education because you you try to find common ground between mm -hmm. people who are in conflict. And, and, and it, it, this, is pervade, this whole idea is pervading science as well. Uh, you know, in, in, in the realm of uh, quantum physics, right, you have uh, the subatomic ent entities, the protons or photons, for example, electrons. And so you ask the question, well, are they waves or are they particles? Well, they're both. They behave <laughs> They behave both ways. <laughs> so, so you have to be a unified, you have to be, Engage in some sort of non-dual thinking in order to embrace that, even as a, even as a hardcore physicist. You see what I'm saying? 
Uh, so uh, <clears throat> the whole, I explore this idea in, in depth in that chapter in my book, mm -hmm. uh, chapter set number six called The Mystery of Oneness, and that all these different models for uh, helping us to Embrace, in, in, embrace the idea of how, how things can be both different and one at the same time. Another scientific uh, metaphor, you could take it as this, is that uh, you, know, you have three states of matter, solid, liquid, gas, right? Mm -hmm. So if you look at water, for example, and ice in terms of water vapor, in terms of liquid, and you did not know the molecular structure, you could very much think, well, they're different things. I mean, they touch differently, feel differently. Yeah. They, you yeah. Know? Yeah. But on the molecular level, it's all one, H2O, right? You see? So that's all, in, in, whether it be science or whether in art or whether you're trying to liberate your perspective through poetry, it's, uh, uh, you're, you're, you're led in that direction where there's an underlying reality of oneness, underlying reality. Of when I was growing up mm -hmm. in the uh, high school youth group, church and then college campus ministry uh, <clears throat> that metaphor was how everybody explained Trinity um, yeah you can use and, it for that and, mm -hmm. uh, and of course you know you don't push too hard though for more explanation because Trinity actually is very difficult to explain um, a concept that's very uh, kind of out there for a lot of people a lot of people think they have the right interpretation of course again is that part of that idea that <clears throat> there's one only one way of looking at things mm -hmm. but that metaphor if, if we really look at it in a more broad manner totally destroys that idea <laughs> because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the the uses and the uh, um, impact that each of those forms have you know is widely different but they're from the same Substance, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, and, mm -hmm. and and so that there is that interdependence mm -hmm. that the, that the three need, um, and uh, and so you know that's one of the things that got me started on that line of thinking about rela uh, relational theology and, and the importance of relationship, mm -hmm. and and so I had some of those early influences from Franciscan, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. as well as Martin Luther King as well as a little Gandhi mm -hmm. uh, at the time. Because you know, I come from the same, I'm in the same generation with you, the 70s in college, and uh, the impact of Vietnam. You know, I'm at the end of the Vietnam thing, mm -hmm. you know, I, mm -hmm. the latter part of the 70s, and then the impact of people coming home. Yeah, well that's... And how yeah. we, mm -hmm. the, but we still have this military machine out there, mm -hmm. this industry mm -hmm. uh, complex that is just, uh, needs war uh, or some kind of uh, uh, interaction that for them to exist you know capitalism is part mm -hmm. of that big mm -hmm. thing mm -hmm. and um, and you know certainly um, over the years I've heard you talk about Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and um, my impression is he had uh, a major influence on your life and Were there other influences? Anybody, well, the, the, I guess I should talk about King and, yeah. and Gandhi a little bit. Uh, by the way, another analogy for the, for the unity and individuality is the, the, the ocean mm -hmm. and then waves on the ocean. Oh, 
was talking to a friend of mine who was in the hospital um, just recently, and uh, he was trying to get a, a grip on the concept of soul and things like that. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I, I was talking about being a, a, a what I call a neo transcendentalist. <laughs> that there's an underlying the the the, uh, the idea of an over oversoul, something which connects all things, like the ocean and. People are like individuals are like waves on the ocean, and we're one. We're one with the ocean, yet at the same time we have our own individuality. individuality. Yeah. Uh, and so, <coughs> uh, I just wanted to kind of bring up bring up that metaphor. Um, the, the the high I call you know, you know the idea of transcendentalism is like a concept of the oversoul, mm -hmm. and. Uh, uh, I'm a neo -trans uh, the transcendentalists really were living in a kind of a, a Newtonian view of the universe. So they drew on metaphors from nature uh, to gain wisdom from. Um, but that whole realm of nature changed when Einstein came along, when quantum physics came along, when Hubble came along and discovered the universe was expanding and so forth. So the neo-transcendentalists would draw metaphors from nature, but will also draw metaphors from post-Newtonian mm -hmm. science. And uh, I, I always joke and say most of us, in fact, most of us are living in a, 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 uh, an antiquated Newtonian universe. <laughs> <laughs> and Leonard, I, I quote Leonard Susskind a lot in this, uh, in this book, which he, Leonard Susskind is a physicist at Stanford University, written a lot, and, and did a lot of research in black holes and so forth. And, and he, he says that we need to rewire our neural networks to be able to embrace and understand the new science somehow. Because we're living as if time is a constant when it's not. We're living as if this is solid. This table here is solid when it's not. Mostly, and, and it's, when things are moving around inside it, all these subatomic levels where we, we don't, we haven't integrated mm -hmm. all that awareness into our. So, um, <clears throat> but when you, when you, you mentioned now, uh, Peace Education, Martin Luther King. Actually, Mahatma Gandhi got, got me first started. When I was, my first trip to India, I got to go to some several places where Gandhi stayed, lived, his cremation site, so forth, these kind of things which you, and, I, and so I started reading much more about that. In addition, reading much more uh, uh, Indian philosophy, uh, Upanishads, uh, Rig Veda, Bhagavad Gita, and so forth. I started reading those, those books when I was, at, at Indiana University back in the early 70s. But when I was actually in India, it kind of made, got more real mm -hmm. for me, you know? I mean, you're right there where it's all, where it all grew from. So, but, but the, uh, what, what Martin Luther King, uh, the, the contribution he made, I think, which helped clarify the concept of nonviolence is he added the word resistance to it, mm -hmm. nonviolent resistance. Because people were so much equating nonviolence with pacifism, with um, uh, with, with, with not, not really being active about it, but simply submissive, submissive and yeah. so forth. Yeah. And he says, no, it's, it's not that. It's not, it's not submissive. It's, it's a method of resistance. And I mentioned in my book that non, I, I go to the point where I say nonviolence is really a form of fighting. Mm -hmm. It's really a form of fighting when you're fighting in a nonviolent way. But you have to understand that there's, there's really three types of violence. 
There's the what we usually think of as violence is physical violence, but there's also psychological violence. Psychological violence is name calling, intimidation, those kind of things, bullying, things yeah. like that. And then there's the violence of of uh, um, oppression and uh, and struck what's it's called structural violence. This mm -hmm. The structures that are developed, which are really uh, uh, discriminating against a particular group of people or they're um, and, and sometimes it's unconscious sometimes we don't realize we've created a structure we don't realize that it's really alienating or placing an, a, a particular group of people at a disadvantage or mm -hmm. and uh, you see that a lot with in, in our society so um, <clears throat> so if you're going to practice nonviolence you have to practice it on all three levels it's not just it's not just physical you see what I'm saying you have to What's your rhetoric? You have to be respectful to people. You have to listen. And, and then if you formulate a particular uh, structure, you have to do it in a way that takes into account well, how are people in this particular group going to be affected by it or another group. You know, would, it be, would it be defined by um, would it be defined by ethnic background or whether it be defined by sexual orientation or whatever. You, you have to keep that in mind. And, uh, and if you don't have an awareness of all that, then you tend to develop structures which, you, which discriminate against one particular group without necessarily realizing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, that's, that's how King, Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi influenced me in, in terms of how you look at the whole concept of violence and nonviolence. You have to have a much more holistic view of it. And also, it, it's very interesting how you look at, you know, the resistance idea of how, how you develop, how, 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 you, how you formulate a strategy to resist or to, to fight an oppression or to fight something. And uh, that you have to be very creative about that when you do that. And, and Martin Luther King was very creative about that. Gandhi is very creative about that. In terms of in terms of strategies they they chose uh, to to bring about reform. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to mm -hmm. take that angle yeah. mm -hmm. and and talk about some of your current uh, activity because mm -hmm. you know the the everything in the last fifty years mm -hmm. has led you to where you're at today. You mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. and, and the kind of things that you're doing, and so I'd like to move to that. Mm -hmm. And to begin that, I'd, I'd like you to, to, to play the flute you brought with us today because, mm -hmm. yeah, as you were mm -hmm. saying, as a musician, as a performer, as mm -hmm. an artist, how music and poetry has become part of um, activism for you. Mm -hmm. uh, and you brought us uh, today your flute, and I've heard it, and it's just beautiful, your playing of it, and, and how much it not only re, um, you know, soothes us and nurtures us, but it's also calls us to something, calls us to an act of love, an act of resistance. Uh, and so if we could take a, a, sure. just a, a minute or, or so uh, for you yeah, to play the, for us, yeah, awesome. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. And, I, you know, when people are get together and they have diff, differing views on things and mm -hmm. they start, they're attached to their view and they start mm -hmm. discussing and maybe even start arguing about it and if they're not careful their language gets a mm -hmm. and they'll um, when, when you hear this or, or, or certain types of music will 
it, it will sort of dissipate that type mm -hmm. of rigidity mm -hmm. and attachment mm -hmm. and, and able to, to just tune into a... Uh, it's soothing. Soothing, but it also leads you to a nonverbal level. Yes. A nonverbal connection. Mm -hmm. And that's important in establishing uh, a, a common ground, an underlying common ground. There's, you know, there's intellectual common ground, but there's also the aesthetic so yeah, I'll play a brief uh, improvisation on this, yeah. Thank you for joining us on Sidewalk Monastery. Please join us on our next episode when we finish this conversation with George Wolfe. You can look forward to that in a couple of weeks. If you would like to reach Kelly or Markey, 
for for Sidewalk Monastery, we can be reached at sidewalkmonastery at gmail.com. Again, that's sidewalkmonastery, one word, at gmail.com. Thank you, and have a wonderful day.